Okay, so I'll begin. Oma Gyana Timirandasya Gyananjana Shalakaya Chakshuru Militam Yena Tasmai Shri Gurve Namaha Narayanam Namaskritya Nanam Charva Narotamam Devim Sarasvatyam Vyasam Tato Jayam Udiraya Panchakalpa Kurudhyascha Kupasindu Daevacha Patitanam Pavanebhyo Vaishnavebhyo Namo Namaha Okay, so welcome everybody. Sorry for that uh, a little bit of chaos at the beginning there. Um, it looks like everything's going. So uh, we're, we're talking about the second chapter of the first canto of the Srimad Bhavatam, um, where Sutta Goswami begins to answer the questions of the sages. And um, in the last, the last couple, sorry, the last class, um, just briefly, we saw him offer his respects to the questioners for asking their questions. Um, and we saw that he offered respects to his guru, Shukadeva Goswami, and we also saw that he offered his respects to uh, the deities presiding over, over the Srimad Bhagavatam, the place, and, uh, and whatnot. And again, offering respects to the sadhus for their questions, because um, these questions were what would, excuse me. Um, well, he knew because of the nature of these questions that the only answer would be that the Srimad Bhagavatam, so he knew he was going to have to have to speak that and he was very grateful for that. So he offered his respects to those below him and he offered his respects to those above him. And then he began to speak. And here we're, we're coming to um, uh, basically to the first time that he, the, the, the sages asked six questions. Um, the first question was practically answered by, um, by the questions themselves. And that's kind of what he said. He said, um, you know, they asked what is most beneficial for, for humanity and, and Sutta Goswami basically answered in the sense that, what, uh, you know, these types of questions, these types of existential questions that, that uh, pertain you know, more solely to the realm of humans. Um, these, are, these types of questions are what, what are most beneficial to humanity. And so he, he kind of answered the first question there. And then the second question is, um, what was the essence of all scriptures by which the self is pleased, and the word the word yatmasudasudati is used um, in the first where they ask the, the questions in the first chapter, and then again um, in the in the second chapter here, and then again in the verse that we're going to come to come to today. So, um, and we see like say the third question that they asked was about the avatars. That's going to come in the next chapter, the third chapter of the, the Bhagavatam. So we see the basically the Bhagavatam is a is, is going and answering these six questions. So the first and the second question are kind of uh, a little bit inter interchangeable um, as to which which um, which verse corresponds to which. But anyhow, here, so we're going to see um, in this in, in these answers that Sutta Goswami is giving some of the most like foundational um, verses uh, of our of our philosophy of our Siddhanta, I'm sure that you'll recognize them. Um, these are verses that, uh, like this one here coming up, is basically um, the the um, definition of pure bhakti. It's a verse that Rupa Goswami kind of uh, um, refined in his Bhakti Rasa Mrita Sindhu and created his his definition of of pure bhakti, Anya Bilasikushinam. That. That verse is kind of based on this, and also as we go forward, we'll see, we'll see um, many other verses 
describing the, the stages of bhakti and whatnot that, that we see in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu and that we're very familiar with. Um, they all, many of them come in this chapter. So it's a very exciting chapter. Um, this, some of these verses form the, the kind of the, the foundation for, this, for many of the Samdharvas. They're found in Chaitanya Charitamrita. Anyhow, I think you guys will know this verse. This is text six. Savaipum sam paro dharmo yato bhakti arhoksaje, ahaitukiya pratiyata yayatma suprasidati. So the supreme occupation for all humanity is that by which men can attain loving devotional service into the transcendent Lord. Such devotional service must be unmotivated and uninterrupted to completely satisfy the self. So this, like I said, is an answer to the second question of the sages, and it's a definition, um, the, the kind of like a foundation, the foundational definition of what is pure bhakti. Um, so the question here is how to satisfy the self, and we get this line, yayatma suprasidati. Um, yayatma suprasidati, that by which the, the self will be completely satisfied. And Gurmaj comments um, here that the the Atma referred to here can mean many things. It can mean, um, like Sanskrit words are often like that. It can mean the body, it can mean the mind, it can mean the intellect. Um, of course, we tend to understand it as meaning the soul, and it can also mean the super soul, uh, the Paramatma. So, so basically, we're, we're kind of uh, talking about how all of these things can be satisfied. I guess, I guess like, um, it's maybe not a great example, but you know, hit, getting five birds with one stone. So all of these things are, are included in the idea of, of Atma. And, and what's also clear, though, is that, that um, these things cannot be satisfied by material, material means. Um, the, the intellect, the soul, and the super soul uh, cannot be satisfied by material means. It's like, like even, I, I, this is something that everybody kind of, um, is aware of on some level or another, even what's his name? Mick Jagger sings, you know, I can't, we can't get no satisfaction. It's not to be had in this world. So ultimately it's it's not the egoic self that's being talked about here, but the the um, the real self. And, uh, you know, Gumar's kind of often makes this point when we're talking about ego death or deconstructing the ego or killing the ego, there's there's someone who's doing that. Um, it's not, it's not the, it's not suicide. It's, there's somebody who is deconstructing the ego. There is a, a an identity on the other side. The scriptures say nityo nityanam chaitanas chaitananam, which means of the many eternals, there's one eternal, and of, of the many units of consciousness, there is one. There is one consciousness. So, so the idea of this verse is that the the self, the atma, will be satisfied in relation, um, in context of satisfying the supreme self. In the beginning of, uh, in, in Gurmaraj's introduction to his Bhagavad Gita, I just remember this because I, I gave that, you know, to my father to read once. And he, I think, I can't remember if he highlighted it or I noticed it in his, some notes or, or he, maybe he brought it up to me, I can't remember. But Gurmaraj describes this really nicely in the introduction to his Gita where he, it's just a nice sentence, you know, where he says that, um, excuse me, life's ultimate necessity is self-realization in the context of God-realization. So we've got, you know, a, a group of people who, who um, are very much interested in self-realization, but in isolation. 
And um, our view is more that that self-realization is best achieved in the context of God-realization. Um, we exist in an, in, an, in an environment. We exist relationally. We're relational beings. And self-realization in and of itself is, a, is, is isolated. Um, it's kind of like trying to, you know, looking at yourself in the mirror, trying to, to, to see oneself in the mirror in the dark. But when the sun comes up, um, this, you know, your reflection is automatically shown to you. So this is kind of the idea in the context of God realization, self-realization um, occurs, occurs very easily, occurs in and of its own. There's a beautiful verse. This is the first verse that I think Gurmaj wrote to me in an email. He said uh, the verse Krishna Surya Sama Maya Haya Anantara. It means that, you know, when when um, the sun of Krishna rises, well then Maya automatically dissipate, dissipates. So it, when when God realization arises, self-realization automatically comes along with that. So um, so the way that one the way that the atma is satisfied is is paro dharma. So we get to the, this idea of dharma and what is the um, you know the function of this self this in its in its uh, proper environment the self in context. And um, again, it's an idea that most people, regardless of affiliation, would agree with that that um, we are all kind of units of of serving potential the Guru Maharaj's words, we can serve this, that, or the other thing, but um, we, we do tend to, we do tend to be um, units of giving potential, whether, whether we give that to, you know, enjoying ourselves, whether we give that to serving our family, or serving our country, or serving, uh, you know, any kind of conception of God, or, or whatever, we, we, we identify ourselves by, by that which we, we serve, and it, you know, it creates a, it creates the identity, whether it's in relation to matter, um, where we we kind of end up with the the same old characters, the same old story, kind of over and over again, or in relation to um, to the center, where where uh, the possibilities that exist more. We tend, you know, we tend to see ourselves as the center, and it's not. Um, you know, it's not unreasonable that that we would think ourselves the center. Like when, you know, just when I'm walking around or whatever. Like I, I think, you know, where am I actually situated? You know, in my body, and and I very much feel like I'm I'm in the center, right behind my eyes, and and my eyes are like, uh, you know, like flashlights or or video cameras. I have all this information coming in. The whole world is around me, and I'm, excuse me, in the center it's all pivoting around me all, all my my visual input and sensual input is kind of pivoting around me and i'm right in the center of of the universe really and you know everybody is is also in the center of their own universe so it's not um you know unfounded or um hard to understand that we would consider ourselves the center um you know i, I guess in the past you know people even thought the earth was the center of the universe and it's you know, from our from our perspective, where we are, it's not an unreasonable thing. But actually, um, we are we are not the center. Where we we are the circumference, and by by situating oneself on the circumference, um, you know, enduring satisfaction will will, will come. The self, um, 
will be satisfied in all respects when it, it realizes that it's not the center and it situates itself on the circumference um, and it will be satisfied in relation to the supreme self. So this is what the, the verse is kind of telling us. And it's telling us that the supreme self will be satisfied um, if we do this verse. And this verse, like I said, is the definition of pure bhakti. So, so it means be sure, um, be absolutely clear. This is for all people. So this is for Brahmins. This is for outcasts. This is for Westerners. This is for, this is for everybody. Um, this is the Dharma for everybody. And, and Dharma implies activity. Um, Prabhupada here translates it as, as occupation. Um, Prabhupada, I, I, I'm going to read this just because sometimes Prabhupada comes, has, has really, you know, a really nice, um, uh, nice paragraph. And, and when I come across those, you know, I, I really appreciate what he says. And so I just wanted to read a little bit of his definition here in relation to, to how he translated the word Dharma. So he said, we have purposely denoted Dharma as occupation because the root of the meaning of the word Dharma is that which sustains, sustains one's existence. A living being's sustenance of existence is to coordinate his activities, his eternal relation with the Supreme Lord Krishna. Krishna is the central pivot of living beings and he is the all-attractive living entity or eternal form amongst all other living beings or eternal forms. Each and every living being has its eternal form in the spiritual existence, and Krishna is the eternal attraction for all of them. Krishna is the complete whole, and everything else is his part and parcel. The relation is one of servant and served, and it is transcendental and completely distinguished from our experience in material existence. This relation of servant and the served is the most congenial form of intimacy. One can realize it as devotional service progresses. And just before he says, one should therefore accept the superior quality of occupation in the form of devotional service of the Lord without any tinge of unnecessary desire, fruit of action and philosophical speculation. He's referring to the other two words here that I'll get to in a second, but he says, this alone can lead one to perpetual solace in his service. I just thought that was a very nice sentence. This alone can lead one to perpetual solace in his service. So when he, what he's talking about there is, is um, Yato bhaktir adhoksaje. So we've got Savai Pumsam Paro Dharma Yato Bhaktir Adhoksaje. So it means this activity that we're talking about is is sadhana bhakti, paro dharma, which leads to prema bhakti, yato bhaktir adhoksaje, prema bhakti, bhaktir adhoksaje. Um, so both are bhakti. Um, they're not two separate things, and one does not lead to the other. Um, uh, it's like uh, I think the example of a mango is often given um, an unripe mango is not the cause of a, of a ripe mango. It's just a difference in, in strength and taste or, or, or sugar, I guess, perhaps. So, yato bhakti adhoksaja. This refers to, to prem bhakti to adhoksaja. And adhoksaja is a very interesting word. Um, I won't go into it too much, but uh, Gumraj in one of his lectures kind of uh, breaks it apart according to the different Sanskrit letters and a, a meaning comes beyond that, which basically means, um, you know, beyond the alphabet, beyond words and language. And it's, a, it's an important point to re remember here that, that, that um, you know, this, um, that the Godhead is, it, it all, you know, in a sense, always remains a mystery. 
um, the word adhoksaja means, means transcendental. And transcendental is what is beyond time and space. So it's not something that we can and can claim claim to know in and out. It's it's constantly remains as somewhat of a mystery. And we have to be comfortable with the idea of not knowing. Um, knowing isn't isn't the way that, that one can get there. There's there's a couple different types of um, of means of knowing, Vedic means of knowing. And one of them is is a is a hoaxaja. The other ones you've probably heard of. Um, Pratyaksha, paroksha, aparoksha. Pratyaksha means sense perception um, as a means of knowing. And, and that's pretty clear that it's not probably not the, uh, the, the best way of knowing things. Even, even dogs have better senses than us, really. So the sense perception is obviously something that is quite, um, quite uh, insufficient. Um, paroksha means kind of depending on the senses of other people or people who know more. Um, and that, of course, is also faulty and um, strange to, to even experience what other people's senses are experiencing. And, and then aparoksha means um, uh, turning within, kind of turning off the senses, contemplation, reflection, vivek. Um, as a means of knowing as well. But all of, all of these things are still ascending. They're preoccupied with the, the experiences instead of, uh, instead of the, the experiencer itself. So they're still somewhat obscuring until you get to this fourth means of knowing, means of, of, of knowing of Vedic types of perception, which is at hoxaja. And this is overtly transcendental. And this is the name here that's being used to describe the Lord means re re revealed knowledge, knowledge that comes descending. And then the, the final one is aprakrita, um, which, which is kind of super transcendental where it, it even looks mundane. Um, but the idea is, is that, that it's a descending path and that we have to be comfortable with not, um, not being able to understand or, or know all of it. Like Kumaras often says, or quoting, you know, if you, they say you know Brahman, means that if you understand Brahman means that you have or that story he gives about the Bhagavatam, which I'm sure you've all heard. Even Mahaprabhu himself is unsure. Um, I'm unsure if he's God. Krishna is unsure if Radha loves him. Um, so we have to be comfortable with, with this type of thing. And then there's also a sweet, a sweet um, uh, a sweet meaning to the name of Hoksaja, which refers to baby Krishna, and it means he who was born under the axle of a cart. So this word is this word is a is a overtly transcendental word. Uh, reminds one, in some senses, of Vishnu and, and the realm beyond time and space. But uh, it's also found to be used by the gopis in addressing Krishna, and it, it means one who is born under the axle of a cart. So to him, to, to this adhoksaja, and the nature of the bhakti is ahaituki and apratiyata. So these are two big words. Ahaituki means unmotivated. So it means um, not covered by jnana, not cover, covered by karma. We're familiar with this from Rupa Goswami's verse. Um, so it means bhakti for bhakti's sake, that the, the path and the goal are the same. Um, you know, in, in a sense, there, there, is only, there is no goal, only a refinement of service. Um, and the other meaning for the word ahaituki, which is also given, is um, Prabhupada here gives unmotivated, but the other, the other uh, translation for the word ahaituki is causeless. 
So it means that only bhakti causes bhakti. And this is uh, you know, an important philosophical point. Um, like I said earlier, it's not that sadhana bhakti causes prem bhakti. Um, so uh, prem bhakti is not caused by sadhana. It's, I, I, I gave the example of the, the mango, but I think there's also reference to maybe like, you know, the, a, a child becoming a youth and then an adult. The childhood itself is not a cause of adulthood. Um, it's just a, a difference in maturation. Um, uh, there's the point that it's not caught. It's uh, this. It's causeless in the sense that it's not even caused by Krishna himself, because that would give him the fault of being partial. Um, uh, it's certainly not caused by um, Varnashram. It's not caused by Gyan or renunciation. Um, and that, 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 that will be clearly stated in the next verse when we get the next couple verses. Gyan um, and renunciation will be spoken about, about. And then the following verse will speak about Varnashram. So it's clear that Bhakti is not caused by either of these things, but the, that the cause of it, if there is any cause, one would say that is, it's the cause, the cause of it would be the mercy of the devotees, of the intermediate intermediate devotees but when looking at it more carefully we see that oh this is just a this is a limb of, of bhakti sadhu sangha um, so this idea that bhakti causes bhakti bhaktiya sangataya bhaktiya they say in the in the um, 11th canto of the bhagavatam only bhakti causes bhakti so something about the word ahaituki and then the other qualifying the other word that describes this kind of bhakti is apratiyata so it means uninterrupted, like a river, like the, the Ganges flowing down to the Bay of Bengal. Nothing can stop it. We have a river down uh, here that we used to have a microelectric system in. We put up a dam to try and protect, protect the inlet of it, but uh, the river was much, much stronger than that. There was no stopping this river. It was, it was uninterrupted despite our, our best intent, intentions. And the other, the other meaning of the other thing to think about when we hear uninterrupted means that um, it's never stopped. So the bhakti is not something that one does for the uh, for a certain uh, portion of the day and then puts aside. Or um, even even in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, bhakti is not something that one does for your entire waking state and then puts it to bed. It puts it aside when one goes to sleep. In Gaudiya Vaishnavism, we have this idea of. of 24-hour service of Astakalya Lila Seva. So the eight, the eight portions of the day, it's going on. So it's uninterrupted in that sense. And it's also uninterrupted in the sense that it can be done anytime, any place, anywhere by anyone. Mahaprabhu says, Nam Nam Akari Bahuda Nijasarva Nakala, that there's no rules, there's no time, there's no place where one can remember the names of the Lord. There's no restriction. Um, you know, it can be done in the toilet, uh, bhakti can be done in the washroom, bhakti can even be done in hell, um, bhakti can go on at any time in any place. So this verse is a definition of pure bhakti, and um, that, that comes in the, in the Srimad Bhagavatam. Rupa Goswami, he has a verse that is a, ref, a refinement of this, um, and, and there's a couple other places in the scripture where there's definitions of pure bhakti, like in the Narada Pancharatra, there's a really nice verse. You probably know it. Um, I think it, uh, Prabhupada was quite fond of it. Sarvopati vinir muktam tattvatrena nirmalam krishikena krishikena sevanam bhakti ichate, I think, or uttamam. Um, anyhow, this is also a very nice verse. And if 
I won't do it now, but if you go and you take these definitions from the scripture of what is pure bhakti, you can course, correlate and correspond um, all the different elements, the, the marginal characteristics and the, um, the, 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 the internal characteristics of it, what it is, what it is not. And you can kind of line up all these verses. And it's, it's a really nice um, exercise to do um, because it's, a, it's really good to be able to define what you're doing and what it's really good to be able to de define what we're doing so that, that one can explain it to somebody else if they should so be interested in. And so that one can explain it to oneself as well. Um, yeah, okay. So I think that's good for that verse, verse six. So we'll move on to verse seven, which is another famous verse you probably heard of. Sorry, just looking at the time. Vasudeva Bhagavati Bhakti Yoga Prayojita Janyati Ashu Vairagyam Gyanam Chayad Ahaitukam. That word is there again, Ahaitukam. So by rendering devotional service unto the personality of Godhead, Sri Krishna, one immediately acquires causeless knowledge and detachment from the world. So it, here in verse seven, after getting the, the definition of what, what is pure bhakti, we get um, kind of the nature of that satisfaction, as well as the clear um, kind of dismissal of, of, of gyan, excuse me, um, Vairagya, so knowledge, renunciation, and in the, in the following verse, karma and varnashram, as, as either being causes or limbs, in and of, limbs of bhakti. So these are, these are quite heavy statements because these types of things, um, jnana, karma, um, varnashram, these are, are, they are nice things in and of themselves, and they're very much respected in, in, in the world and in, um, in spiritual circles. Certainly, Gyan and Vairagya are very noble and respected things. So these are these are heavy statements when they're saying that um, the nature of this satisfaction for for the Atma and for the Paramatma um, is not Gyan or Vairagya, but Bhakti um, Bhakti Yoga Prayojita. So Bhakti Yoga Prayojita means Vishnu Chakravarti has given this means that it's full of special feelings. So it means it's it's full of these tastes of rasa of, of parental love, friendly love, romantic love. Um, and within that, within that, without endeavoring separately, um, knowledge and renunciation come. So in one, so in a sense, you know, this type of knowledge of the difference between matter and spirit, renunciation of things of the world, these things come naturally, um, like, like uh, you know, maidservants to the queen or whatnot. Um, but also when, it, when they're talking about this gyan and vairagyam, it's referring to a special kind, the gyan of, of um, the knowledge of bhakti, um, the, the forms of Krishna, his quality, his personality, um, his pastimes, that type of knowledge. These are like, you know, the details of love. When, when you fall in love with somebody, all these little details become something that one wants to search out or know about or contemplate so these details of Krishna and then the renunciation is of everything that is not favorable to bhakti so like one would do when uh, courting somebody or you know you give up the things that are that perhaps your your lover doesn't like so much um, and this happens very naturally uh, the idea of the higher taste that like that cookbook for example you know that if one, one is engaged in something higher these kind of lesser things fall away quite naturally Sarva Boma gives a very beautiful verse 
describing Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, um, he says, Vairagya Vidya Nija Bhakti Yoga, Shikshartha Mega Purusha Purana, Shri Krishna Chaitanya Sharira Dari, Kripam Budir Tam Aham Prabhupada. And it means that um, Sri Chaitanya appeared to, to give real, to, to, to share real knowledge, uh, knowledge of his own bhakti and detachment from whatever doesn't foster this. Um, let me see if I can just find Prabhupada's translation because it's, it's quite nice the way that he says it. It's something along those lines. He says, I can find it quickly. He says, let me take shelter of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Sri Krishna, who is descended in the form, as, form of Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu to teach us real knowledge, his devotional service, and detachment from whatever does not foster Krishna consciousness. So, so this description and glorification of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is kind of describing these, these types of, this type of gyan and this type of, type of vairagya and that they come naturally and that they are included um, within bhakti. The idea being that pursuing them in and of themselves can be problematic. Um, and why would that be? Rupa Goswami kind of explains that a little bit further in his, uh, maybe at the end of, of the, uh, the, the chapter that begins with the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. So he, he uses the previous verse to, to construct his verse of, or to, I mean, he, he refines it to, to create his own verse defining pure bhakti, anyabhyas, shukrishunyam. And then later in the chapter, after describing um, many, many limbs and, and parts of bhakti, um, he, he says this, that, that jnana and vairagya, in a sense, they can be problematic pursued on their own because they're very hard, hard heart-hardening. Like, uh, well, not like cholesterol, but they harden the heart. Arguing, debating, um, the the pride of knowledge, the self-esteem that comes from these types of things, um, they cause they tend to cause the one to, the heart to be hard. And you know that's very that's very opposed to what um, our goal is, which is prem. And he he, he defines prem bhakti as well. And bhav bhakti and prem bhakti are are both described in terms of. Uh, uh, progressive softening of the heart. In bhav bhakti, the, the heart becomes soft and in prem bhakti, it becomes completely melted. Gurmaj has often said that, you know, in order to, in order to keep kind of hard heartedness in check in the ashram, because in the ashram, you know, people might have a, have a tendency a little bit more towards vairagya uh, uh, renunciation of it. That's one of the, the the things about having cows in the ashram and why Gumarsh wants to have cows because it keeps everyone's heart very soft because cows are you know, very affectionate and, and cute animals to be with. So one doesn't need to, to pursue these things on their own. Um, when you've got oil and water mixed together, this is an example I heard from Sham Sundar, when you've got oil and, and water mixed together, trying to get the oil out on its own is very, very troublesome. Um, and it's kind of like like uh, you know practicing renunciation for its own sake. It's very difficult to to remove oil from water, but if you just keep adding more water to the mixture, eventually the oil rises and falls off the top. So that's kind of the idea that just by doing bhakti alone, the, these things will go away. And and as well, um, the qualification for bhakti is really that one is not too attached nor too detached. 
So these highly respected things are, are shown as being um, made servants of bhakti, not to be pursued on their own. So uh, what to speak of Gyan and Vairagya in the next verse we come to, we come to, if I'm not mistaken, yes, where he, 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 he goes on to Varnashram. So, so what to speak of you know, Gyan and Vairagya, what to speak of Varnashram? He says, Dharma span, excuse me, Dharma svanustitapumsam vishvakshena kataya. So you might have heard this before. Shrama Duties executed by men, regardless of occupation, are only so much useless labor if they do not provoke attraction for the message of the Supreme Lord. So what it's basic, what it's what it's saying here is that Varnashram doesn't um, if it doesn't produce taste, um, rati, uh, rati, if it doesn't produce taste for the message of the Supreme Lord, then it is a waste of time. And um, the thing that we just learned is that bhakti is 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 causeless. So so what it's saying here is that varnashram dharma is a waste of time because varnat you know bhakti causes bhakti. That that's the point that has to be very clear. Uh, Gyan doesn't cause bhakti, Vairagya doesn't cause bhakti, and so if Varnashram doesn't cause bhakti, which we've learned, um, then it is a waste of time. So that's what this verse is saying. This verse is saying, it sounds, it sounds heavy, and it's not a, a, a means of uh, just uh, criticizing it, but, but what it means is that Varnashram doesn't produce bhakti, and therefore Varnashram is a waste of time. Bhakti is a high tuki. Um, so, you know, and, and also, you know, we're, when we're looking for a spiritual path or a spiritual process to engage in, it's because we're trying to get out of this world of, of cause and effect. Um, so, so we would want what we're in, involved in, what engaged in, to, to be beyond cause and effect. There is cause and effect within Yan and within Varnashram, um, but not within Bhakti. So that's you know why we're we're, we're drawn to it. Um, this is interesting because the verse is about producing taste. It says that that you know if Varnashram doesn't produce taste for uh, for bhakti, then it's a waste of time. And actually, just it won't be in this class, but in in a couple classes that uh, or the next class, it taught the the same chapter gives um, what causes taste. It's a really nice verse. Shushu shro shada hanasya vasudeva kataruchi styan sevaya vipra punya tirtha. So it means what what does give one taste for bhakti is bhakti in the in the in the form of of um, the mercy of the devotees, and this is talking about how one one serves the devotees and, and associates them and gets taste uh, for for harikatha. So the state the statements are strong um, and they're clear. We find it here uh, uh, a, a respectful dismissal of varnashram. Just like we find at the end of the Gita, Sarvadharman Prithyaja, Mamikam Sharambaja. And we also find it at the very beginning of the Bhagavatam itself, in, in just back of, uh, in the first chapter, Dhar Dharma Projitat Kaitavota, give up motivated religion. And Varnashram and Gyan are certainly motivated. Um, Varnashram is, is motivated for material things, position within this world. Guru Maharaj has called it before the re a religion of suffering because 
desire only ends up, you know, this type of thing ends up in suffering. So it's petitioning God, behaving in a certain way towards God in order to, to get material things, which ultimately, ultimately cause suffering. And then Gyan as well is motivated in the sense that it's, it's for the relief from suffering and, and nothing else. I, I will do what I need to do to relieve my suffering and then, and then it's over. So in a sense, I was thinking about it, like in relation, when I was thinking about Krishna as, as, the, as the son, and these are kind of like geocentric um, in the sense, these are like geocentric kind of views of religion. It's not exactly the right, the right word to use, but they're, they're the type of past that, that envision God orbiting us. Just like in the past, they, they would see the earth as the center and the sun was orbiting us. Whereas bhakti becomes more like a heliocentric version, where actually we're we're we we are meant to be orbiting, orbiting God. Um, we're meant to be on the circumference, and we we all know now that the heliocentric version of the of the universe is actually the more accurate one. So uh, this is played out in the Chaitanya Charitamrita as well. Um, it's almost shocking the the pranam that we say to to Gornitinanda Bandesh. When you, when you read this verse in the Chaitanya Charitamrita, you see that it's followed by verses that compare Gornitai to, to the sun and the moon and they arise simultaneously and how wonderful it is and that they, they dissipate the darkness and illuminate the heart and illuminate all things by removing the darkness of ignorance. And then Krishna Das Kaviraj goes, Goswami goes on to make, uh, you know, a very uh, striking statement. He says, means I call this darkness of ignorance cheating. And it begins with the desire for Dharma, Artha, Kama, and Moksha. So it's a pretty revolutionary statement because these are, you know, are the four goals of life according to Hinduism. I think some people might be able to say, oh, Dharma, Artha, and Kama, I understand, but Moksha, I mean, Moksha is, is, is very much a, a central, a central tenant. And, and as we see before, it's the uh, corollaries of Gyan and, and Vairagya are mentioned. And it, it made me think of like Prabhupada when, um, you know, Prabhupada used to preach in a very kind of like uh, universal and, and accommodating way and where he would say, oh, this is not Hinduism. You know, we're not Hindus, we're not Muslims, we're, we're you know, this is, this is not about that, that type of religion. And I was always kind of like, well, you know, it's, a nice, it's very nice the way that he's preaching in that way, very ecumenical, trying to be non-sectarian and draw people in, um, you know, by saying this is not Hinduism. But I took world religions in high school, you know, <laughs> I know very well that this Vaishnavism is a, is a, a sect of Hinduism. Um, but it, until I came across these verses, and then I was, I, I kind of realized what Prabhupada was you know why he was saying that it's you know this is not Hinduism because these are the, the these are what constitute Hinduism and they're being rejected. So like Umar says, this is this is kind of like the New Testament of um, of the Vedic religions. So I mean, and this is this is um, you know it must be said that it's I'm not I, this is not being said to disparage these paths because these paths because they are they are enunciated by the Lord. In the scripture, uh, they're, they're, they are given, but they're for people who don't have eligibility for bhakti. And and also by speaking in this way, the texts are kind of trying to instill faith in bhakti. And also they are making 
you know, they are making an objective comparison. You know, we see regard for these by Mahaprabhu. You know, he followed his dharma very, very uh, strictly. He's known, he's known for that. Grihijana Shikshat and Nyasipula Nayaki. He was the, you know, the, the, the perfect example of a householder and the, the hero for, for the sannyasis. But the thing is, when Varnashram came into conflict with his bhakti, he, he dropped it immediately, um, just like a dead weight. And I can't help being, you know, excited when I, about those parts when, you know, when you see him doing that. I, per, perhaps just my personality, I was always, you know, kind of turned on when you see him breaking these rules. And there's many examples, you know, like he immediately, after, he, took, he took sannyas and immediately after he like broke it. He went back to see his mother, um, you know, went back to see Sachi and said, you know, whatever you command, I'll do. When, it, when someone takes sannyasa, generally they're not supposed to go the next day to see their mother. I, I, I looked up the, this, you know, they have this group Swami Narayan. They have these big temples, these big, beautiful temples outside the airport in Toronto. And uh, my mom and I went to visit once and, you know, I was reading through their literature and their sect of sannyas is extremely strict. There's absolutely no contact with the family allowed after, you know, they're accepted into their sannyas, their sannyas order. So we see Mahaprabhu, he took sannyas and then immediately went to see his mother. He also, in the, in the Jagannath temple, let a woman climb on his shoulders because he could see, you know, he could see the, the measure of her devotion and her bhakti to Lord Jagannath. But, um, he let her get on get, get on his shoulder so that she could have a better view. So this again is not uh, not kosher <laughs> according to 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 Varnashram. And and in, in many ways, just generally singing and dancing like he was doing, um, that's not the Dharma of a sannyasi. He was criticized by Prakashananda Saraswati for, you know, he said, Why are you not studying Vedanta? That's the Dharma of a sannyasi. Here you are singing and dancing in the streets. Um, so there over and over in the Chaitanya Charitamrita, Advaita Chaya doing the Shraddha ceremony, which seems to be within the bounds of Varnashram, but then he, you know, he's supposed to give it to the best Brahman and he, he gives it to, to Haridas Thakur, I think so. And we see it in the Bhagavatam as well. Um, and, and we almost don't think anything of it because you know, we have been uh, educated in, in Shuddha Bhakti. So we don't think much of it. We just think, oh, they're doing Bhakti, but over and over again, there's example of, of examples of Prahlad and Lakshman um, disobeying certain elements of Varnashram, uh, Bali Maharaj, when, when they come in conflict with Bhakti. And, and of course, the biggest example of that would be, would be the Gopikas of Vrindavan, the biggest example of that. So, sorry, just looking at the time. Okay, and we'll move on to, to text nine, which kind of says, uh, gives a, a a clarification of what dharma is for. It goes dharmasya hi apavargasya narto nartyo pakalpate nartasya dharmaikanatasya kamo lapa hismita. Pardon my Sanskrit. All occupational engagements, dharmas, are certainly meant for ultimate liberation. They should never be performed for material gain. Furthermore, one who is engaged in the ultimate occupational service should never use material gain to cultivate sense gratification. So what this verse is saying is that all dharmas are ultimately meant for liberation. That's the meaning of the word apavarga, ultimate liber liberation. Um, 
apavarga. So dharmas are ultimately meant for, for liberation. Dharma unto itself is not the goal. Uh, the result of performing dharma, like, like we've seen from, from this previous verse that I quote, uh, quoted from the Chaitanya Charitamrita, that this progression is given, dharma, artha, kama, moksha. These are the four, uh, the four purusharthas. So the result of performing dharma is artha, the uh, acquisition of material results. The result of material acquisition is the desire, kama. And the result of kama, the result of kama is the pleasure of the senses. So it, 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 it's a cycle that goes like this. You do dharma, you get artha. Artha allows you to pursue kama, being the pleasure of the senses. And then for the senses, like, which we know can never be satisfied, one goes around again um, for further pleasure and executes the sequence again. So in a sense, it, it's, it's, it seems a little bit strange that, that it seems like a bit of a trap um, because you know one gets trapped in this. And from this very verse, we're, we're told that um, you know, Dharma is not forgetting things, that Dharma is meant for ultimate, liber ultimate liberation of Bhavarkya. So how to understand this? And the way that Gumaraj explained it is that this, this uh, kind of cycle is, is actually a kind of carrot, it's kind of bait um, that, that promotes faith in scripture. So by, by following the scripture, one gets, um, you know, by following the scripture, one gets artha and one gets kama, one gets what, you know, one fulfills one's desires through following it, and then one gains faith in the scripture. Um, so it, it's like in that sense, it's a carrot. And ideally what's supposed to happen is that it's, it's supposed to cause one to look more deeply into the scripture. So one will, will look, oh, it's also talking about Brahman, Brahma Jignasu, and then you know, further development from that uh, Rasa Jignasu. So that's, that's what's going on here. But the idea, the ideal is, is liber liberation. So for the Gyani, that means Brahman. Uh, for the these are there's Vishnu has described in this part that there's four types of people in the world. There's the karmi, so this would be the one that's kind of trapped in the cycle of those first three. So there's the, the karmi, the jnani, the yogi, and the bhakta. So ultimate, uh, you know, ultimate engagement is certainly meant for ultimate liberation. So for the jnani, that means Brahman. For the yogi, that means paramatma, and for the devotee, it means Bhagavan. So jnanis and yogis. Um, they begin and their practice is, is uh, you know, somewhat an outgrowth of Nishkam Karma Yoga or detached action. Um, so there is a result from that, um, a karmic result in the realm of the, the practice of the Gyan and the Yogi. Like um, for the Yogi, you know, they, they acquire cities, for example, or for the Gyani, perhaps they would uh, you know, get a lot of followers or whatnot, because uh, you know, like like I said, by beginning by their practice, beginning in Nishkam Karma Yoga, there's karmic karmic results that come, such as cities and followers. For the bhaktas, there's no karmic effect um, because bhakti is outside of the realm of, of of cause and effect. But still, things come, like perhaps you know, fame, popularity. We uh, we talked about. Um, Shukadev Goswami being, um, you know, everybody loving him, um, 
you know, one could become, one could develop very, very nice skills, very, very nice singing voice or be an excellent cook for the deity or something like that. So these types of things can come, but what the verse is emphasizing, um, they can come for the bhakta and they can come from the other, the other categories, but the, what the verse is emphasizing that, that these things should be used in the context of seeking the goal of Apavarga and that one, that one should not become distracted by these things. Um, and if anything else comes in the context of bhakti, or liberation for the others, it should be used for furthering that. Okay, verse 10. Kamasya, uh, kamasya nendriya pritir labo jiveti yavata jivasya tattva jignasa narto yascheha karma. Life's desire should never be aimed at gratis, gratifying the senses. One should desire to live only because human life enables one to inquire about the absolute this should be the goal of all works. So this is the idea, um, or just kind of like emphasizing the point that the satisfaction of the senses might come from practicing Dharma, but that life should not be lived for that. Uh, life, life should not be lived for the carrot that the Dharma offers. Um, and you know, sense enjoyment is not the goal of life, um, but it's not because, it's not because God, you know, People sometimes get turned off by this idea, you know, sense gratification is bad. And, and it's not that God is a grumpy old man, um, you know, who just wants to ruin everybody's fun, or they didn't write all these rules down and everything just to, because they were uptight and wanted to rule, ruin everybody's fun. But, but just that it, it's, it's the nature of desire. And, and you, you know, this is a truth that you just can't get around. And, um, and also human life is, is, an amazing opportunity, um, you know, human life affords something very, very special. So because of these two things, um, you know, sense, uh, you know, sensual pleasure is described in this way. Um, in human life, one has the opportunity, the opportunity to give um, and not just get. So this is an amazing thing, you know, sometimes I watch cat videos and cute animal videos on YouTube, and the ones that are the most special are, the, uh, you know, the, the the cutest are when you see two different animals, two different species doing some kind of affectionate thing, or you know, there'll be uh, a video of a, a cat saving a bird or something like that, and it's you know, it, it's really nice because these are this is not the general, you know, the general. Um, way that animals behave. And so when we see that, we're like, oh, but that's, I mean, that's the thing that humans can do. Um, we can choose, choose those type of things, saying, being polite, deferring to somebody else, this type of thing. Um, and then the other thing is, of course, that, uh, you know, we can, we can inquire into the absolute. Um, so, and, and so it's making that point. And then we have five minutes until it's been an hour and there's a really important verse that comes up here. Um, but I'll, I'll try and just kind of do it quickly because the nature of that absolute that we're meant to look for is, uh, or pursue is given here. This is probably one of the most famous verses. This is like the verse that describes the absolute for us. This is the verse that describes the absolute, the, the, the concept of the absolute that Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu embraced. It's a, probably the most key verse of, 
of Sambanda. I'm sure you know it. Viranti tat tatvavidas tatvam yadhyanam advayam. Rameti paramapneti bhagavan iti shabdite. Learned transcendentalists who know the absolute truth call this non-dual substance Brahman, Paramatma, or Bhagavan. So this is the, the verse. It's a very important verse. We find it quoted all over the place. It forms the, the basis of, of uh, it forms a big part of Tattva Sandarbha. It forms the basis of Bhagavat and Par Paramatma Sandarbha. Uh, the verse is quoted six times in, in the Chaitanya Charitamrita in four different um, in four different places. The verse is quoted. So we, we hear often that if, some, if something is repeated three times in Vedic literature, it's very important. This verse in the Chaitanya Charitamrita is 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 quoted six times. So you can see how it's it's a very very important verse, and it forms the basis for Krishnadas Kaviraj's beautiful composition um, of his his Vasta near Desh Shlok at the beginning, where he describes Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu as being Krishna, as Brahman be, being the, the effulgence of his, his body, as the Paramatma being a partial expansion of himself, um, and uh, as of him as being Bhagavan endowed with all six opulences. So, um, yeah, I won't, I won't go into all the places that it's found in, in the Chaitanya Charitamrita. You can go and look that but it's it's worth it's worth noting. But basically, the idea here is that in all schools of Vedanta, whether they be uh, monist, dualist, non-dualist, qualified dualist, all these different schools, the absolute um, is viewed as consciousness. This is a central tenet of all the schools of Vedanta. And this idea of consciousness is, I mean, this, there's a lot to say about it. Um, but it's it's a hard thing to define in many ways because. You know, it's, it's hard for people to come together and, and necessarily agree what it means. It's a hard thing to define because to define because it's it is uh, totally categorically different um, from anything out there. So there's nothing to compare it to. All things are are experienced by us, while consciousness is is that experience itself, or or perhaps the the theater or the backdrop on which those experiences um, happen is first person subjective experience or uh, or being or existence. Um, you know, existence itself being itself. Um, sometimes it gets confused with like awareness or perception or being awake or being cognizant. These are all functional properties. So it's, it's, it doesn't mean that it means this, this it means that this first person existential um, existential awareness. It means that which cannot be denied. These are very simple simple ways of thinking about consciousness. It's a it's a, a very complicated subject that I, I I certainly cannot do justice. But I read these parts in Gumraj's um, Tattva Sandarbha, and they they're they're kind of straightforward and easy to understand, but but very deep at the same time. It's consciousness is that which cannot be denied because denial is itself an act of consciousness. So one cannot say consciousness doesn't exist um, in the same or in the same way that you know you can't say existence doesn't exist in the same way that you, you you say you know my mother is barren for example. It's one can't say that even the concept of nothing or ultimate void uh, any of these types of things that the Buddhists put forward or anything they all have consciousness of, as their foundation. That's the um, the screen that all these ideas are being. And, and experiences are being projecting 
projected on. We have no experience of not existing. So the Bhagavatam is declaring that the nature of reality is consciousness and that it's experiential. And, and then just you know, quickly, the other word here that, that, that qualifies it, jnanam, is advayam. So it means non-dual. So we are also non-dualists. And what that means is that there's no reality independent of it. It means there's no Satan. In Christianity, there's a, you know, there's a Satan, there's an other. In, in Vedanta, there is no other. Um, there's only Krishna and his Shakti. So that's all there is, no one to blame. There's only Krishna and his Shakti playing and his Shaktis are entirely dependent on him. They're one with him and at the same time different from him. So um, also non-dual, it's also non-dual in relation to uh, the Vedantic uh, categories, in, uh, internal non-dualism, non-dualism between objects of the same class and objects, uh, non-dualism in relation to to um, objects of different classes. And this is really actually really nicely put forward in the, in the Brahma Samhita. Um, all three of these different categories are given like the non-difference between um, a particular object, like the parts of the object are non-different from the object of itself. I'm just gonna read the, the English of them very quickly because um, they're really nice and they're really, um, they're verses that we're all familiar with. But this idea that there's no internal difference it means that all the different parts of his body can do all the different functions. So we know, like for example, Krishna can eat with his feet, and he can he can um, speak with his eyes, with his hands. He, you know, all these things. We know this verse: Angani yasya sakalen manti pashyanti pranti kalyanti chiram jaganti. So it means. I worship Govinda, the primeval Lord, whose transcendental form is full of blessed truth and substantiality. Each of the limbs of that transcendental figure possesses in himself the full-fledged functions of all the organs. So that's referring to svagatyabed, uh, non-difference within a particular object. Now the next category is svajatyabed, which means difference between the objects of the same class, like uh, two different sized glasses. And we also find that in the in the Brahma Samhita, which is a, a, a really nice book of tattva for our, our sampradaya that Mahaprabhu liked very much. Um, this is Svajatyabed, the light of one candle being communicated to other candles, although it burns separately in them, is of the same quality. So that would this would refer to like um, uh, Krishna and his avatars. So uh, in the difference between objects of the same class, we know that. Krishna's avatars are non-different from him. And in this example of a candle lighting other candles is given. And the last category is vijatyabed, which means the difference between objects of a different class, like the difference between a glass and a spoon. So the material world we know is a, <laughs> certainly a different class, um, but it's non-different from him, even though it's unconscious in the sense that it's his shakti and is completely dependent on him in every respect. And there's a nice verse given in the Brahma Samhita. I'll just read the, the English for it, but he is an undifferentiated entity as there is no distinction between the potency and the possessor thereof. In his work of creation of millions of worlds, his potency remains inseparable. All the universes exist in him and he is present in his fullness in every one of the atoms that are scattered throughout the universe at one and the same time. So these, these are the three categories of, of uh, um, that the three categories of difference in, in Vedantic idea. So um, 
And then just to finish this last, the last part of this verse, um, this non-dual consciousness can be appreciated as three manifestations or three phases of the, of the absolute realized by uh, the three different paths approaching him. So like mentioned before, there's three different transcendental paths, the jnani, the yogi, and the bhakta. Um, so the three different spiritual practices that they, they engage in are different processes for understanding the absolute. But these are three features of the same one absolute. They're different. Uh, I think Prabhupada describes it. They're, they're different perspective views seen from different angles of vision and through different methods of approach. So for the jnani, he appears as, as the effulgence of being. For the yogis, they see him as the all-pervasive knower, the paramatma. And the bhaktas, of course, see him as Bhagavan. The Jiva Goswami says the irresistible, irresistible form of love. And Krishna is Svayam Bhagavan. So um, Bhagavan is Krishna, not that Krishna is Bhagavan. Bhagavan is not a category that Krishna occupies, but rather Bhagavan is one angle, and we would say the most complete angle of vision in which the reality of Krishna can be seen. And um, it's this is a nice verse because it's so much more include. It's a very inclusive and ecumenical idea of the absolute. I mean, you just you you compare it to Advaita Vedanta, and on the surface, Advaita Vedanta seems very accommodating. People really like it because you can worship Ganesh, you can worship Durga. You know, it's all one. It's all one. So. Where on the surface it's all good, it's all cool, you know. But ultimately, they, it's it's very dictatorial. In fact, there's only room for one idea. It's all one. But but this idea, this idea of of, of non-dual consciousness being realized as as Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan is actually very inclusive. There's room for for everyone and, and to to view the the jewel of Krishna from different facets. Um, so I'll just go qu quickly read verse 12 and 13 and 14 in English. That absolute truth is realized by the seriously inquisitive student or sage who is well equipped with knowledge and who has become detached by rendering devotional service and hearing from Vedanta Sutra. So again, there's a reiteration that knowledge and detachment come from devotional service and that this is a descending path. We hear and advance by, by hearing the scripture or um, Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur translates this as hearing from the guru. Verse 13, O best among the twice born, it is therefore concluded, therefore concluded that the highest perfection one can achieve by discharging his prescribed duties according to case divisions and order of life is to please the Lord Hari. This, this verse we probably, probably heard, So Gumaraj quotes that often. Um, basically that all dharmas are, are, are perfected by bhakti. Haritoshanam is at the root of all success, whatever the dharma is. So it's better to just go and directly water the root, directly serve, serve Hari. Um, and then finally, just to finish off this last section, verse 14, therefore devotees should constantly hear, glorify, remember, and worship the personality of Godhead Bhagavan, who is their protector. And here, the important limbs of bhakti are enumerated. Shrotavya kirti. So we hear, and this is the, the order that they are found in over and over again. It's quite consistent hearing, chanting, remembering, and then worshiping. Um, and Sharanagati says the Lord is their protector. So by hearing, chanting, remembrance will come, worship will come. So that ends this section. Sorry, it's quite a few verses. The next session, section that we come to is very interesting. This is where we get. Uh, the stages of bhakti. Um, 
in, in the, the, ba the Bhavatam's version of the stages of bhakti, starting from, in fact, starting from Agyata Sukriti through faith, sadhu sangha, like that. We find these in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, and of course, Bhakti Nathakur has shown this, how these appear in the, in the verses of the Shikshastakam, which Guru Maharaj has written beautifully about. So the next class um, in this chapter will be on these verses um, of the different stages of bhakti going from, from faith to prema. So I'll just stop there. So I went a little bit over the hour. Um, if anybody has any comments or corrections or questions, I'll unmute you guys. If, see if I'm doing it right. Okay, I think you're unmuted. If anybody would like to make any comments or. Or at least tell me that I unmuted you properly. Okay. Oh, let's see, there's something in the chat. I didn't unmute you. Okay, well, if I go to participants. Okay, I'm kind of lost now, actually. How do I get out of the chat? Oh, okay. now it's I think it, Yeah, I think you can unmute yourself yeah. now. Sorry about that. I'm really, I'm not that but good. Briko is having a question. Okay. Haribol Prabhuji. Haribol. Thank you very much for this this class. I enjoyed it very, very much. Thank you. I really like, like the way you were speaking about these verses. But I have a question about uh, this Advaya Jnana Tattva. Oh. In, in this famous famous verse, uh, it, it seems, I mean, our philosophy really is is uh, inconceivable simultaneous uh, um, unity and difference, mm -hmm. but we stress very much the difference aspect. Mm -hmm. uh, is this something you would like to to comment on? Why, why is it like this? Outsiders, sure, yeah. often think that outsiders often think that we're, we're straight out dualists. I know, it's true. It's a, that's a very interesting point. I've kind of, it's come up in discussion a little bit before. It's true. People really think we're, we're extreme um, dualists in a sense, because there's so much emphasis on the difference between uh, the body and the soul, consciousness and matter, etc. And, and also the jiva and, uh, and Bhagavan. Now, I mean, I, the only it's a very deep subject and I'm not a very deep person. So I don't know what I can say beyond that. That um, I think the reason why is because, you know, what we're interested in mostly is love and love requires duality. So, so you know, the whole, uh, all, the whole philosophy and everything is all about love and the permutations and nuances of love. So the emphasis has to be on the difference between 
um, Bhagavan and the Jiva in order, you know, because it's in the difference more, right, where one is able to have all those expressions of love. That's what I, that's, I mean, that's kind of all that I can say as to why I would think that, that so much emphasis is put on the difference. It's in, it's in, it takes two to love. Um, but, you know, when you go and you read some things, like I was, I was, I remember being quite taken aback when reading the Chaitanya Charitamrita where Radha and Krishna are, I mean, they're not merging, but they're, they're getting lost into who's who, you know, and there is this kind of sense of, of, of unity and intermingling and merging in love. But in general, love takes two people. Um, so we're interested in love. And so I think it would be talked about in that way the most. That's the only thing that I can kind of guess. And then the other thing that I would say is I, I actually have heard Bumar say that, you know, there might be a time where it, it's better to emphasize the non-duality more because we're both, you know, we're a chintya beta beta, like both different and non-different at the same time. And like you said, we tend to emphasize the difference. But I've heard Gurmaj say where, um, you know, there might be times where it's, or maybe perhaps now is the time where um, uh, we should start emphasizing more the non-dual part of it, you know, without distorting the philosophy, of course. But I've heard him say that, like he said, you know, you know, maybe now is the, you know, like there's certain ways of speaking about things like, you know, giving up religion, for example, is a very popular idea now. So he'll, he, he sometimes speaks, you know, we're not, uh, people say, oh, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. And Guru Maharaj will say, oh, yes, I mean, that's what Krishna says, give up religion, you know, um, like that. So he said that, he said, um, he said that perhaps it's, it's better to, at certain situations or certain times, perhaps to speak more from the uh, non-different side of the Achintya Beta 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 category. I know that's all I could, um, that's, that's kind of what came to mind. Did, what did you, th is that, is that what you were asking about? Yeah. Okay. Anybody else have any comment or question or correction? Haribol, it's Gurunishta here. Haribol, um, I just had a follow-up comment on what uh, you said and Brigo said about the non-duality and duality. And um, I personally feel like exactly like you said, that now would be like the time to start focusing, not focusing on it, but like, I'm giving, I guess you could almost say proper emphasis on the non-dual side. And like my thought was that perhaps it wasn't emphasized as much in India in the Gaudiya context of India because it was taken for granted in India. Like the basis is non-dualism there. That is like the kind of like the religious, uh, what would you call it, default. And so then we, Gaudiya's wanted to make the point that like we are not only non-dualist but we're also dualist so that it would make sense that they kind of almost overemphasized it at that point but then i feel like like there's a lot of like baggage with the theistic religions in the west because of the dualism the extreme dualism so that's why mm -hmm. in my opinion it would definitely make sense to start uh all, like emphasizing the non-dualism to a little bit separate us from this really hierarchical dualistic idea of this monotheistic God. But yeah, that's all I have to say. Thanks for the class, it was great. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Certainly that's, and and, and Gurmash has mentioned that before. 
Um, and what you said was interesting, actually, because it made me think another reason, uh, kind of an outgrowth of what you said is it being the default of, of India, uh, kind of Indian thinking or whatever would be just actually Prabhupada's uh, pervasiveness in, in Gaudiya Vaishnava, you know, regardless in the West, but everywhere. I mean, Prabhupada is such a huge figure. And because of the time and place that he um, found himself, you know, surrounded by, by many other people coming from India, but he had to like emphasize that so much, you know, we're not monists, we're not monists. You know, there was Vivekananda yeah. and this one and that one, Yogi Bhajan and Sai Baba and all these people. And Prabhupada, um, you know, had to like really hammer that point because of the uh, the situation that he found himself in. And Prabhupada is, you know, he, he's like, he permeates everything. He permeates Gaudiya Vaishnavism um, in today's world like nobody else. Um, and that's the that's environment he found himself in. So he was very much speaking from that angle of vision. But I agree with you. I mean, there's the other angle of vision. It's, it's you know, it's half and half. It's a chintya beta beta. So, um, and... Like I was thinking about that also in relation to this verse, it's, it, this is a little tangential, but of that, that verse defining pure bhakti, like I think that the, the, the definition of pure bhakti from, um, from the Narada Pancharatra in some ways is like very attractive. It says sarvo padi vinir muktam, you know, like give up all designations. This is something that's very, you know, attractive to, um, to, the, to, to the modern world. Whereas, uh, um, you know, uh, what's his name, uh, Rupa Goswami's verse, it might not, people don't quite, it might be harder for people to like attach to that, but attaching to the idea of, oh, there's no, you know, no potties, no, anyways, yeah, that's just what I thought of Prabhupada too, you know, he, he spoke in a certain way, on a lot of different things, he spoke in a very specific way for specific reasons. So. Yeah, that's a great point, great. what you said about, about, um, when the other yogis and uh, gyanis came to the West, they were all about non-duality. So even in, in the Western context context back then, it would make sense or made sense to emphasize the duality aspect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, anybody else? Gursundar, hi Krishna. Hare Krishna. Mahara. Well, Mitra. <laughs> I'm under her label today. Um, but uh, that last verse that you mentioned, Shrotavya Kirtitavyascha Jaya Pujascha Nityada. We were reading um, about Prabhupada installing the Jagannath deities. I know we're trying to be up to date and talking about getting along with all the yogis and everything, but this was back in 1967 mm -hmm. um, when they installed the Jagannath deities and he made a very simple procedure of just offering a candle and he told everyone, just take the candle, everybody wave it in front of the Jagannath. And then the topic of his talk was that verse, Shrotavya, Jaya Pujascha, Nityada. So he said, now you're doing all of these things. Now your devotional service is complete. You are hearing, Shotavya, you're doing Kirtan, Kirtitavyascha, Dhyaya, you're meditating, and now you have Puja. And uh, he just repeated that over and over again. 
in his talk. It's 1967. You can look it up on the archives. Prabhupada Vani, you can hear the original, and it's so cool. All the hippies in the background. He just, he made it so simple. Now, you have these four things. And all it was was, you know, this carved out of a block of wood, Jagannath, really simple. And they were waving a candle around. And he said, you know, whatever you have, always come to the deity, bring something. He just made it so simple. And then he referred to that verse saying, now your life is complete. Just thought I'd bring that up. <laughs> Very nice. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a nice, how, it's a nice, it's a nice verse. It's beautiful. Yeah. How, how does that one start? Because there are a couple. It starts, different tasmat, tasmat ekana manasa bhagavan sattvatam pati. Uh -huh. It's actually it's a very nice verse. Sattvatam pati. Here we see uh, the devotees. I think is it, let me see. Yeah, the devotees are referred to as sattvatam, which is a, another is a nice nice thing to speak about. The devotees are truthful. I think uh, maybe in the first or the second verse of the Bhagavatam, they're also referred that way, right? As uh, by that. And also, the word pati means. I think he translates that as the protector of the devotees, and. Yeah. I read this with a, a group of, uh, anyway, in a suburban setting. And this one woman, when she read that, she just looked shocked and like, oh, because like she said, in my Christian group, I always get these prayer requests. And I'm getting so tired of like, you got to pray for this person. And, and so like what she saw in that was rather than praying to help this person that's having a hard time, just realize, yeah, do the other four things. Do those four things and you're you're taken care of. So rather than pray, heal this person, we pray, let them So we we squeezed a lot out of that that one verse. Yeah. Yeah, that's very and, nice. And it was just so nice to read. It was it was kind of a surprise when we read that because it was in another group reading and everyone was surprised how Prabhupada had simplified that verse and in and put it in such practical application. You know, if you were gonna install deities, what verse would you speak on? And that was the one he chose, Tasmat Ekena Manasa. Just keep your mind on one point. Um, Bhagavan Sattvatang Pati and realize he's going to take care of you. And then do these four things. And here, I've given you this. I've shown you how to carve this statue of Krishna. And now you worship him by bringing a flower or whatever you have. He just made it so simple and approachable. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That's very nice. Is there anybody else who'd like to share something or ask a question or a correction? Okay, well, we've, we've gone on for quite a while. I have a guy coming who's going to give us a quote for redoing some floors at 11. So I also have to run. Thank you very much for 
for coming and thanks for all your, your, your lovely uh, observations and comments. And oh, I should say, uh, tomorrow's the Swami call, right? And then there's a, a, a week of lovely classes that you can tune into. And I think next weekend is, uh, I think it next, it's next weekend is Vyas Puja and, and uh, Gaur Purnima. Am I right? I think so. Yeah. So yeah. I won't. So yeah. So I won't be. I won't be giving class next week. Uh, Gurmarsh will. There'll be the festival classes, um, but there'll be lovely classes all throughout the week. And if I'm not mistaken, I think my day is being moved to uh, Thursday after that. But I, I'm sure Padmanabh Marsh will will post something about all the upcoming events. But I just wanted to mention that. And next week is uh, Gurmarsh will be giving festival lectures, and then I think. If you're interested in following the, the stages of bhakti as outlined in, in the Bhagavatam, that class will be on Thursday, I think. Okay, Hari Bol, Hari Krishna, thank you very much. Bunch of